Uh, we're going to spend some time in Psalm 119. Would you take a minute and pray with me again now as we change course and enter in God's word? Father in heaven, as we open up your words, would you help us not to handle things that are precious and holy as if they're common? Your words are rich and full, spirit and life sufficient, full of wonder, full of power and authority. Help our hearts to be rightly prepared to hear and receive what you have spoken. The words of Psalm 119 are words about your words, designed to raise our sights, our expectations, our hopes, and our reliance upon the things that you've said. Today, the text assures us that whatever the turmoil we might be experiencing within our own souls, that your word is sufficient and powerful enough to bring our souls into a rightful state of peace, assurance, and endurance. Lord, increase our faith today so that the things you have said become the things we rest upon and celebrate and live by for your glory. Amen. Amen. We are studying through Psalm 119. We're going to take about a dozen weeks this summer. Psalm 119 in the Hebrew is a poem, an acrostic poem, each stanza beginning with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet, taking us through the 22 letters. We won't cover each one of those, but we'll cover several of them. Last week, the emphasis was on how the Word of God is our source for strength as we live in a fallen world surrounded by troubles. It's trouble from without, causing hardship in our lives. How do we respond? How do we cope with living in a fallen world, with a sinful world, with lots of trouble around us? And the answer is in and through God's Word. This week, the theme is similar, although the focus is less about the trouble without and more about the trouble within, the trouble that often arises within our own souls. The point is simply this. When our own soul is laid low, it is God's word that cures us and leads us through. When we experience pain, we all tend to get a little desperate for relief. And we have a tendency to look to anything and everything that holds out promise for some relief, sometimes overlooking or setting aside the very thing that God has given to us, his very words. So the aim of the text that we're going to read in just a few seconds is to create a kind of disposition in our hearts so that when our souls are down and out, that we come to the Lord, the Lord who knows us, who's able to help us, who's able to heal us. God's word and the power of his spirit are what our soul needs most and the greatest benefit of coming to him with this kind of dependence and faith is that through it and in it, we come to know and enjoy him, which will turn out to be a greater benefit than all the troubles and even being healed of the troubles. Let's read together. We've got verses 25 to 32. So Psalm 119, 
verses 25 to 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The first point is identifying the problem that our psalmist confesses to us here. We'll call point number one, stuck in the dust. He is stuck in the dust. The state of his soul from the psalmist writing this is a low state of depression. He begins this section by saying, my soul clings to the dust. Now, dust in the Bible is a metaphor that is used in a few different ways. I mean, dust on the one hand is a multitude spreadiest. God's promise to Abraham and God's people are going to be like the dust of the earth. They're going to spread everywhere. They're going to be everywhere. They're going to show up everywhere. But also dust can be a sign of contrition, like when you read about people throwing dust and dirt on their head. They are down and full of contrition and penitence and and sorrow, and they're flinging dust on their heads. Now, here in this situation, clinging to the dust is an expression of a person feeling their smallness, their frailty, their humanity in the worst sense of the term, what we are apart from God. My soul clings to the dust. When God created mankind, it says in Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. But when sin entered in, in Genesis chapter 3, and in the results of falling into sin, God pronounces this curse. It closes the list of curse by this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So without the life, the breath of God, the Spirit of God, God breathing life into us, we are but dust. And this psalmist is feeling this intensely. He is in the dust aware of his own frailty, his smallness. He feels like he does not have the life of God, the breath of God in him. He's no longer a living creature as he perceives himself to be. He feels death inside. Verse 28, he says, My soul melts away for sorrow. The word for melt here could also be translated leaking or dripping, which reminded me of a 
statement I remember reading about Abraham Lincoln, who was so depressed at times and so downcast. His, his closest work associate, William Hurden, said his melancholy dripped from him as he walked. He was just dripping with depression. He walked into the room and you could feel it in the room. You looked at him and it seemed as though his sorrow was just dripping from his very being. Ed Welch, in his book on depression, A Stubborn Darkness, he quotes several various statements about people caught in this kind of despair. He writes things like, there was no control of my mind. Thoughts ravaged me, brutally harsh ideas, thoroughly crushed ideals, incomprehensible feelings. The mind is stuck. How can people think about anything else when it is there, it, meaning this depression? I'm in a straitjacket. I'm completely bound and tied up. There is a gag in my mouth. David Paulson has a testimony as well as he was working in a psychiatric ward. This is from uh, an article that he wrote, Answers for the Human Condition, Why I Chose Seminary for Training in Counseling. He says, I was working in a mental health, as a mental health worker on a locked ward at McLean Hospital outside Boston. One day, a young woman named Mary slashed herself with a broken bottle. As we dressed her wounds and sought to calm her, she wailed inconsolably, who will love me? Who will love me? Who could love me? Who could love me? Drugs eventually quieted her down, but both her anguish and her guilt made the psychologies I had believed and practiced seem like thin gruel. Her distraught cry was realistic and heartrending. Nothing I knew could really answer her, not her psychiatrist, medication, parents, job, boyfriend, or peers in the small group I led. We could manage Mary, sort of, but neither our theories nor our techniques could really touch what ailed her. Mary's despair posed an unanswerable question, like a pebble in my shoe. In retrospect, I see that her cry of desolation could only find specific answer in the mercy and hope of Jesus, one thing that our theories, therapies, and institution made a point never to offer her. In our text, we have just two simple statements from this psalmist. I'm stuck in the dust and I'm dripping with sorrow. It does not elaborate on all the details, and my point is not to prove that he is case in point, the worst case of depression. The point is he doesn't tell us that much detail except his soul was laid low. But the point is not how far down was he or what were the specifics of his condition. The point was what he did in response. The point was where he turned, who he looked to, and where he found his hope and his help. The detail and the degree of the problem does not matter as much as the response. The response is good for the worst and the least. It fits. He cries for life. Point number two, crying for life. We know the situation that he's in, his soul is laid low, but he cries out for life. Give me life. He goes to the Lord. He says, when I told of my ways, you answered me. That's a wonderful phrase. When I went to the Lord with my life, with my problem, 
he, the Lord, answered me. We're, we're so prone to misunderstand prayer and fail often to simply bring our true selves to the Lord. I've been reading about this recently and helped by a recent book by Kyle Strobel and John Cole entitled, Where Prayer Becomes Real, How Honesty with God Transforms Your Soul. In it, they state that prayer is not a place to be good. It is a place to be honest. It is not a place to perform, but a place to be present. It is not a place to be right, but to be known. Not a place to prove your worth, but a place to receive worth and offer yourself in truth. I don't know if you feel this or experience. I know I have many times when I'm not doing well, the temptation is not to go to the Lord because I want to be good when I go to the Lord. And when it's time to pray, let me good in myself up and say things that I think God wants to hear, good, good things, as opposed to simply coming to the Lord, as if he doesn't know already what's going on in my own soul. Let verse 6, 26 transform your approach to God. When I told him the truth about myself, he didn't run away. He didn't shut me out. He listened. He answered. He can handle it. God can handle your worst day. He can handle the turmoil that's going on in your own soul. And there's a beautiful freedom that we experience in simply bringing our true selves to the Lord. And he cries out, Lord, give me life. He feels only death, and he cries out to God for life. So note, though, this is not a terminally ill person asking to live and not die from their illness. This is not someone whose life is being threatened by murderous enemies going to take his life and saying, oh, Lord, would you please spare me from being killed? It is a person whose quality of life is nothing but death-like. And he's asking for a quality of life that's worthy to be called a life. He would say that his current situation is not true living. It's not a life worth living. And he comes to the Lord and asks for that. Give me life. Give me a life worth living. He says, give me life according to your word. Now, this is a very important qualifier statement there. I want life according to your word. Now, here's where we find the real value of Psalm 119, where its strength really begins to shine and come through. Because the truth is, you and I, all of us, have some kind of life in our minds and in our hearts that we think is the kind of life we want God to give us. It might involve more square footage to your home, a better neighborhood, more money in the bank, better dining experiences, more and better vacations, plenty of fun and laughter with friends. Whatever's on your list, you've got a life in your heart. You've got some kind of life in your mind that, that you think this must be good. And when you hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you automatically put two and two together. The good life that I imagine in my mind must be, if he loves me and wants good for me, that must be his plan for my life too. So lay it on me, God. I'm ready for the good life. But the psalmist qualifies. 
Lord, I'm asking for a life according to your word. So this poses a question that we should be asking. So what, what is this life that God has promised? And then I will ask you as we talk about what is this life that God has promised, do you then need to adjust your expectations of the life you want from God? What I want to do in this little section of the sermon here is I would like to use our statement of faith. I hope you have a copy. If you don't, uh, we should have some on the table. This is a fairly recently written statement of faith within our denomination. There is a section in there called Life in Christ. I'd like to just use that paragraph. I think it's where this tool can be very useful for us. And I'm going to read it and then interject because this will be then biblically the life that God promises to us. This is life according to your word. The intention of me doing this is, is twofold. First, maybe we need to adjust our expectation of the life that God gives. But secondly, then also to realize that the life that God gives actually far exceeds and is better than the life we think we want. He does mean for our good. And too often we're selling ourselves too short with the things we're asking from God. Well, let's go through it. Here's the paragraph. The statement begins with this sentence. All believers, by virtue of their union with Christ, are progressively transformed into his image. I will insert here, it is a being transformed into the image of Christ kind of life that God gives. Okay, so we're trying to analyze what is the life that God gives. Well, Here's the first point of the kind of life God gives. It is a transformed into the image of Christ kind of life. Second sentence from our statement of faith. Although the ruling power of sin in our lives has been broken, remnants of corruption remain in our hearts that we fight throughout our lives. So I would say it is an ongoing victorious fight kind of life that God gives. Next sentence, this lifelong process of growth takes place as the Spirit empowers us to abide in Christ and strive for holiness in every area of life. So then I would say it is a Spirit-empowered life of holiness kind of life that God gives. Next sentence, resting in Christ's finished work never renders our effort unnecessary, but rather enables the joyful pursuit of loving and pleasing God. So it is a restful, joyful effort of pleasing God kind of life that God gives. Compelled by grace, believers grow in the knowledge of God, obey Christ's commands, walk by the Spirit, mortify sin, and pursue God's priorities and purposes. So then it is a grace-filled growth in knowledge of God and obedience to Christ kind of life that God gives. Although such actions are not the ground of our salvation, they demonstrate the authenticity of our salvation and are a means by which God keeps us faithful to the end. In other words, it is a grace-filled, fruit-bearing kind of life that God gives. 
And among the many public and private means of grace, the word of God, prayer, and fellowship are primary instruments of our sanctification, fostering communion with God and training us together to glorify him, love others, and testify to Christ in the world. And so, therefore, it is a life filled with our participation in glorifying God and fulfilling his purposes kind of life that God gives I hope this fills out a bit of a picture for you so that you too, like the psalmist, would cry out and say, Oh Lord, give me life. But when you say give me life, these would be the reference points you'd have for the kind of life you're asking God to give. This is the kind of life that God is promising us. This is life according to God's word. Okay, friends, is this what you're expecting God to give you? Is this on your prayer list? Are these the categories? Are these the things when you're going to God with your knees? Do you realize these are his intention? These are his promises? These are the things we ought to be seeking from him? If these things were not on your list, can I encourage you to think, that the things on God's list are better than the things on your list? I don't doubt your list is a good list. I don't doubt as many happy things for you on your list. These are greater. These are better. You will be happier in the long run with the life that God gives according to his word. Third point, finding the path. We've established where he's at. We've established where he hopes to go. Now, how do you get from here to there? The psalmist, throughout these eight verses, lays out a bit of a plan. There are two things in this section that we read that he is asking God to do. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Make me, enable me to understand the way of your precepts. I'm in a desperate situation. I am dying, and I need you to give me life. And here is how this is going to happen. I need you to give me discernment and help me understand what you are calling me to in this situation. I need your help, Lord. And I need to know that you have the words that will guide me and provide for me. I not only need your words, I need your help in order for me to understand them. I need you to give me eyes that see. I need you to give me discernment. I cannot simply read these words. I need your spirit to enable me to understand them for what they are. He also says, put false ways far from me. It's going to be two sort of possible meanings of what he's talking about. First, help me not to look to false and wrong solutions for my problem. There is no end to all the advice and all the alternatives, all the alternatives that are out there that exclude God from the solution. If you stand up and say, I have a problem, and you Google your problem, you will not be hurting for suggestions, for answers, for assurances, for promises. His prayer 
is, oh, Lord, keep me from the false ways and guide me into the true way. Guide me according to your word. Enable me to understand what you have said so that I'm not looking at some worldly philosophy that is apart from God, that overlooks God, that negates God. So put false ways from me. But secondly, it also could mean that there are false ways within his own heart. Ah, the old problem of sin. Still just having unconfessed, ongoing sin in our lives. Oh, Lord, help me not to harbor unforgiveness. Lord, help me not to be filled with resentment or self-pity. I'm in a false way if I am. If my heart is filled with resentment, I'm in a false way. I'm being misled. I cannot come into the, the light of the truth if my heart is consumed bitterness, unforgiveness, self-pity, resentment. Oh, Lord, put these false ways from me. From here, there are four things that he commits himself to do. He's asking for God's help. Give me discernment. Give me understanding. Shine your light on my heart. Guide and direct me into true ways. Keep me from false ways. And then the psalmist says, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. He decides, he chooses. Well, change begins with a decision. A decision in your heart. A decision that you need to make, must make. There is a decision required for change. And that decision needs to be faithfulness to God and trusting in God's faithfulness. This is the non-negotiable decision. Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fall, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I have made a decision. I belong to the Lord. I'm looking to and trusting in his faithfulness that decision has been made no need to look elsewhere i've decided i have set i have chosen i have set your rules before me i will commit myself to making a habit of looking to your words my commitment is to keep myself, my own soul, exposed to what you have said. In other words, I will keep reading my Bible. I will continue listening to biblical teaching. I will read, I will study, I will meditate on the words you have spoken. I have set myself in that direction. I've chosen 
You are my answer. I've set myself towards your words. Thirdly, he says, and I cling. He used the same word in the first verse that we read. He begins with, my soul clings to the dust. My soul is stuck, bound to the ground. I am face down in the dirt, and I cannot get up. I cannot move. I am clinging to it. I am stuck to it. Now he's taking that same verb and that same concept and saying, here's my commitment to your word. I am clinging to it. Now it's a volitional act of the will. I'm holding on, Lord, to what you say. I'm laying hold of your promises, and I am clinging to them. I consider myself stuck to them, bound to them, tied to them, and I refuse to let them go. And lastly, he says, I will run in the way of your commandments. An amazing statement for someone who is stuck in the dust, now saying, I will run. We begin to see the Spirit of God already at work in his heart, his determination to get up and to run. By God's empowering grace, he sets himself to run in God's ways, meaning he's determined and ready to give it his full effort, small as it may be, to running in the Lord's ways. The Bible often uses the analogy of walking for the Christian life. It's a very good, even, steady-paced, constant. We, we walk with the Lord. We walk in his ways. It's a common metaphor. But running describes something now more intense in its determination. Yes, we are walking every day in the Lord. We, we walk in his ways. But now... Desperate times call for desperate measures. My soul is so cast down. I'm laid down in the dirt. So now I'm not talking about just walking. I'm running. I'm running. I need to give it all my energy. I need to muster up, perk up, avail myself of the grace of God. This is a more intense response. Oh, Lord, this is how much I need your life. I will run towards your commands. God, the great coach, who's able to stir up within us a strength and a power beyond ourselves. If you've ever had a good coach, they will train you to surprise yourself with what you can do. And here is God giving us his spirit, working through the power of his word and the power of his spirit in us, stirring up, here, a great need, holding forth great promise. And yes, even you can run now. When you see the goodness of God, when you've chosen and set yourself towards this word, and you see the value of it, and you see the glory of it, and you see the hope in it, and you realize this is my alternative. This is my solution. This is where I need to turn. And so I will. And you won't find me just walking. You will find me running. What does that all add up to in conclusion? 
choosing, setting, clinging, running could be summed up in one word, faith. Faith. Do you believe that the Lord and his word are worth choosing to follow? Do you believe that about God's word? That it's worth choosing his words? All your alternatives, all your options for your happiness, all the things that you could avail yourself of, is there faith in your heart that would cause you to choose to follow God's word? Do you believe that he's worth setting your sights on? Do you believe he's worth setting your heart's desires and your expectations on him and his words? Is he worth clinging to? Is he worth running towards? The section closes with when you enlarge my heart. Another translation, when you set my heart free. Do you see the contrast from the beginning to the end? We have a man describing his soul as being bound down to the ground and stuck and unable to get up. And he finishes as he turns to God's word, describing a heart that is enlarged, a wide space filled with freedom, filled with peace. He gives us in short order, eight verses. Here's where God's word is taking us to a wide place, place of freedom. Worship team, you can come on up. Friends, I just wanted to ask in closing, I don't know if you're here this afternoon and you would say that your own soul is in some frame of turmoil or trouble. Wouldn't surprise me if many of us would say that it is. I hope I've made the point. Look, you don't, you don't have to be in your worst state for this psalm to speak to your heart. The point is, it's good for your worst day. It's good for your average day, your not-so-good day. It's even what you need on some of your best days. But I wondered if we could together, I would just ask you to stand. I wonder if we could pray together. And there could be a, if you would be willing to agree with me, that we would pray together to, in a fresh way, set our hearts. That the disposition of this psalmist would be taking place in our own hearts and say, Lord, I'm, whatever trouble, you might be facing could you say in faith lord i choose your ways i set myself towards what you've said 
I'm going to cling to the promises that you've made and to the instructions that you've given, all your words in whatever form they come. Father, I want you to know that's where I'm turning. That's what I'm looking to. That's what I'm trusting in. That's what I'm clinging to. I'd like to pray that and I would hope that everyone in the room would agree with me that we would leave our time together today with a fresh sense of a filled out version of crying out to God, give me life. And now I mean life according to your word. Father, I, I do ask that you would help us that what these few verses depict in one man's life, in one season of his life, would have its effect on each one of us. Lord, we, we, we pray for your spirit to move every time we gather. And now, Lord, in specific ways, would you instill and raise up from within each of our hearts a fresh cry, oh Lord, give me life give me life and to whatever extent anyone and everyone in the room is encountering some aspect of death in their soul some downcastness some trouble some turmoil oh lord that by your spirit and in the power of your word you would lift up their eyes and there would be a, a fresh sense of the soul saying, Oh, Lord, I choose you. I set myself to your words. I cling to them. I will run to you with my troubles to find you, to find hope in you. I pray that this would be the disposition of our hearts, Lord and that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing your word.